Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Tales to Terrify, Crime City Central, Protecting Project Pulp, and the all-new Far-Fetched Fables. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. This is the Starship Sova, everybody. Welcome. Hello and welcome to show 353. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello, everyone. I hope everyone is fine and dandy. Gorgeous morning here in the northeast of England, and there's so much going on. I've yawning there, you know, I was stretching and yawning. <laughs> so, I'll give you a little heads up what's coming in today's show. It is a, not a strange little show, but it's quite a quirky little show. We have two very short Stories from Catherine Kramer, and sandwiched in between that is our looking back at genre history by our very own Amy H. Sturgis. So the first one would be Disextinction by Catherine Kramer. Then, like I say, we have Amy H. Sturgis, and I'll give you a little kind of chat about that as well. Then we've got Catherine's You in Emulation as well. So that is today's show. I do hope you will stick around and enjoy it. So first up is Disextinction by Catherine Kramer. I'll give you a little heads up about Catherine. Catherine Kramer lives in Westport, New York. She is the editor of the Hieroglyph Project, inspired by Neil Stevenson's and sponsored by the Center for Science and Imagination at the Arizona State University. Her story, Am I Free to Go?, was published by Tor.com in December 2012. She is a writer, critic, anthologist who co-edited the year's best fantasy and the year's best SF series with David G. Hartwell. Her most recent historical anthologies include the Space Opera Renaissance and the Hard SF Renaissance, both co-edited with Hartwell. The previous Hard SF anthology was The Ascent of Wonder, which came out in 1994. She won a World Fantasy Award for the Best Anthology for The Architect of Fear, co-edited with Peter Pulatz. She was nominated for a World Fantasy Award for an anthology, Walls of Fear. She also co-edited several anthologies of Christmas and fantasy stories with Hartwell. 
She was a runner-up for the Pioneer Award for Best Essay on SF of the Year and is on the editorial board of the New York Review of Science Fiction, for which she's been nominated for a Hugo Award many times. The story is narrated by Dennis M. Lane. Now, come on, you must know who Dennis is. In case you don't, I will give you a little bio. Dennis M. Lane is a Reisling Award nominee. He was born in the monochrome days of the early 60s, deep in the industrial heartland of England. Coming of age during the Thatcher years, the conflict that he experienced during the steel strike and the teacher strike played a great part on his political development. In 1986, he travelled to the rural Nigeria as a volunteer teacher, and this led to a long career working in international development, which he continues today. He has lived in seven countries across Africa, the Caribbean and the Pacific, each country making his own impact upon him. He has finally settled in South Africa, where he now lived for almost ten years. His first novel, Teletu, was a young adult science fiction tale. It was published in 2013, March. His second novel was published in August 2013, The King's Duel, the first of the Helix Key series, a young adult novel best described as Quantum Leap meets Assassin's Creed with a backbone of Stargate. And as you know, outside of writing, Dennis is the monthly film review for Starship Sofa. There you go, Dennis, sir. And a little cracking narration here as well. So, the Starship Sova is very proud to present. Disextinction Inc. by Catherine Kramer. Daddies! shouted Erica, my bright eyed granddaughter, when she saw the new bears at the zoo. So many of the animals, moas, dodos, thylacines, have a fluorescent green gene with the copyright of my son Jason's company. Disextinction Inc. Today, we saw the newest, Atlas Bears, absent since the 19th century. In 1999, when Jason was a toddler learning to talk, he asked to see the dodo birds at the zoo. Go zoo, see dodo birds. Go zoo, see Barbary lions. He was an animal kid. Selecting library books, he chose those with realistic faces of animals on the covers. I had just read him, Gone Forever, an alphabet of extinct animals. I exchanged solemn glances with the children's librarian and explained, Extinction is forever. There were never going to be any more. These animals were all gone. All gone, he echoed earnestly. So sad. For days, he pestered me. Want quaggas? Want great orc? I searched the web for animals he craved. I searched on Barbary lion, allegedly extinct since the 1920s. The preferred lions of ancient Roman arenas, they were bigger than the lions in the zoo. I don't know how to convey my shock when the search engine delivered links to recent photographs of Barbary lions rescued from an abandoned circus in Zanzibar. I found a photograph of the last quagga, striped from head to midriff, which died in Amsterdam in the 1870s. I also found the quagga rebreeding project, with recent photographs of rebred quaggas grazing on the grounds of a particle accelerator in South Africa. A plain zebra subspecies, the quagga was rebred from the living population. As I dug deeper, 
the stories got weirder. Schoolboys in Hastings, New Zealand, held an academic conference on the possibility of cloning their school mascot, the Huia bird, driven extinct by a 1920s hat craze. The assembled scientists set out to clone the Huia. In Thailand, there was a project to clone a magnificent 100-year-old preserved white elephant for the king. When the Japanese woolly mammoth group got its tissue samples to reproduce, the living cells were to be sent to the white elephant cloners. I opened Jason a brokerage account and put in his and my Christmas money. My thought was to buy him stock in Disney or Mattel. Then I had a better idea. A company called Geron was down because they bought Roslin Labs, the Roslin that cloned Dolly the sheep. Bingo! I bought him a hundred shares. I put more money into what I was thinking of as his college fund and bought other interesting biotech stocks. Abgenics, Affymetrics, Maxigen. Wall Street thought these stocks were interesting too. My son became quite well-to-do for a toddler. When Jason was three, we drove to Florida to see his first Barbary lion. When he was four, we went to Africa to see quaggas. When he was five, we went to New Zealand to see fuzzy little huia chicks, born of magpies and a herd of Enderby cattle, a breed that can live on a diet of seaweed, rebred from a single aging cow and some frozen bull semen. When he was eight, we flew to Tokyo to see baby woolly mammoths. When he was twelve, we visited the Barbary Lion Refuge in the mountains of Morocco. At fourteen, he decided to do some cloning of his own. For his biology semester project, he chose the passenger pigeon. Because of the boom in livestock cloning, all the services he needed could be located through Enron Online's biotech market. Once he talked a tissue sample out of the Smithsonian, all he had to do was order services over the web and send and receive FedExes. Living chicks arrived by the semester's end. Suddenly, Jason was famous as the kid who'd cloned the passenger pigeon. He'd spent a third of his college fund on eight passenger pigeon chicks. I was amazed and appalled. Then he got tissue samples from the National Naturhistorisch Museum Leiden and spent the rest of his college fund cloning the great orc and, peculiarly, the quagga. He sold his great orc chicks at a significant profit. The quagga cult he donated to the quagga rebreeding project. He incorporated calling his company Disextinction Inc. We're at the beginning of a mass extinction. I've got a service the world needs, he said. When he was 19, disextinction went public. At that time, he was too busy for college. When I see Erica cuddled up to Javanese tiger cubs in front of Jason's tank of exotic cichlids, I can't help but wonder what else Jason has added to their genetic makeup. How disextinct species differ from the originals. Yesterday, Disney bought the company. When Erica heard the news, her eyes grew large. 
She is so pleased. There you go. Don't forget, copyright is Catherine Kramer's. Catherine, thank you so much. We'll play another one a little bit later on in the show. And a big thank you to Dennis. Dennis, sir. Big hug, sir. So next up is Amy H. Sturgis. With her looking back at genre history, Ames. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. It's time for another look back into genre history. This is Amy H. Sturgis, and I am back from a fantastic time at Worldcon. It was brilliant to finally get to meet Tony face-to-face and so many sofa-nauts. I returned home sleep-deprived and jet-lagged to discover that classes were getting ready to start and I was expected to teach them. Crazy! Fortunately, I have had a bit of sleep, and now I am ready to talk genre history. I'd like to do something a little different in today's segment. I would like to take uh, those of you who didn't come to LUNCON 3, the 72nd World Science Fiction Convention, with me in the sense that I would like to review one of the genre history exhibits there. I'll admit it, I'm a total nerd for exhibits at cons, and world cons in particular, and I was very much looking forward to one specifically. That was the exhibit called The Destruction of London. I had my own little mental checklist of works that I hoped would be referenced in this exhibit, which celebrated all of the ways in which the city of London had been torn apart, ravaged, and faced with apocalyptic and post-apocalyptic nightmares in the history of science fiction, and went with high hopes. And I've got to say, I was very impressed with, uh, with the exhibit. And so I wanted to tell you a bit about it and what was covered in it for those of you who didn't see it. All props are due to the exhibit's organizer, Andy Sawyer, science fiction librarian at Special Collections and Archives at the University of Liverpool. I should also mention that this exhibit was sponsored by the Science Fiction Foundation. The Destruction of London exhibit was organized into six parts. The Wilderness, where London stood. Artillery, Anarchists, and Aerostats. What did London ever do to Mr. Wells? Fog, fire, fission, flood, and frost. Invasion and attack. And what human and inhuman ingenuity can do. So let's start at the beginning with part one of the destruction of London, the wilderness where London stood. The exhibit opened with the words... For hundreds of years, we British have fantasized about the destruction of our capital. Maybe it's because so many of us actually live outside that large city somewhere in the south. Maybe it's something to do with anxieties about the words united and kingdom. Or could it be that imagining London's iconic buildings, things of the past, is some sort of psychological signifier about our personal fears of mortality? And next to those opening lines was a picture of the 1982 book, London After the Bomb, What a Nuclear Attack Really Means, which was a warning for Londoners of the fate of London in the case of nuclear war. Sort of sets the tone for the whole thing, don't you think? 
This section discussed early predictions of flood and fire, and then gets down to the good stuff with a discussion of the Examiner from the first of February in eighteen eighteen, when replying to his friend Percy Shelley's Ozymandias, which had been published a fortnight earlier, Horace Smith developed Shelley's image of the fragment of a long-lost civilization to consider the idea that someday tourists will ask who once dwelled in, quote, the wilderness where London stood. And then, right out of the starting gate, the exhibit discussed two of the works that were on my wish list, works I hope to see. The first, one of my favorite novels of all time, actually, Mary Shelley's The Last Man from 1826, which discusses a plague that devastates uh, first England, but also the rest of the world. In part autobiographical, as the main characters are Mary Shelley and members of the romantic circle with whom she was once uh, intimate, including her husband, Percy Bysshe Shelley, and Lord Byron, both of whom, by the point of this book, were dead. They're not given their own names in the novel, but if you know what you're looking for, you can see them clearly. The exhibit underscored an excerpt from this novel. On the 20th of November, Adrian and I rode for the last time through the streets of London. They were grass-grown and deserted. The open doors of the empty mansions creaked upon their hinges. Rank herbage and deforming dirt had swiftly accumulated on the steps of the houses. The voiceless steeples of the churches pierced the smokeless air. The churches were open, but no prayer was offered at the altars. We passed St. Paul's. London, which had extended so far in suburbs in all direction, had been somewhat deserted in the midst, and much of what had in former days obscured this vast building was removed. Its ponderous mass, blackened stone, and high dome made it look not like a temple, but a tomb. And the next work in the exhibit mentioned was Richard Jeffrey's After London, from 1885, which imagined the world that was growing up in the ruins of a destroyed London. You may remember that I talked about Richard Jeffries and After London in particular all the way back in my Looking Back on Genre History segment in episode 134. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. 
So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Of Starship Sofa. And here's a quote from that novel that the exhibit highlighted. Hitherto, Felix had accepted all that he saw as something so strange as to be unaccountable. During his advance into this region, in the canoe, he had, in fact, become slowly stupefied by the poisonous vapor he had inhaled. He now at last began to realize his position. The finding of the heap of blackened money touched a chord of memory. These skeletons were the miserable relics of men who had ventured in search of ancient treasures into the deadly marshes over the site of the mightiest city of former days— the deserted and utterly extinct city of London was under his feet. Pretty sobering stuff, right? The next section of the exhibit was called Artillery, Anarchists, and Aerostats, and it focused on future warfare. And here I'm quoting from the exhibit. From George Chesney's The Battle of Dorking in 1871, the flesh of the reading public was made to creep by prophecies of invasions from authors like Lloyd Williams and Williams LeCou. London was devastated countless times by invading armies. At the same time, the melodramas by George Griffith often featured mad anarchists using aerostats or balloons and even powered heavier-than-air machines to rain destruction down upon London. Accompanying this, some really chilling artwork was displayed, such as the Fred T. Jane illustration from George Griffith's The Angel of the Revolution from 1893. The third part of the exhibit focused solely on H.G. Wells, and it was titled, What Did London Ever Do to Mr. Wells? And it pointed out how H.G. Wells rained fire and destruction down upon London over and over again in novels such as The War of the Worlds in 1898, When the Sleeper Wakes in 1899, that one was revised as The Sleeper Awakes in 1910, The War in the Air in 1908, and The World Set Free in 1914. From Martian Invasion to Nuclear Warfare, Wells didn't seem to have any trouble coming up with new ways to tear London apart. Part 4, Fog, Fire, Fission, Flood, and Frost, investigated different ways that uh, the natural elements, that the climate, had been used against London. Some very interesting stuff here. For example, there's focus on air that kills, such as uh, the killer fog in The Doom of the Great City in 1880 by William Delisle Hay, and The Purple Cloud from 1901 by M.P. Scheele, 
and even The Poison Belt in 1913 by Arthur Conan Doyle. The exhibit also looks at drowned London. For example, when the xenobathite aliens in John Wyndham's The Kraken Wakes in 1953 melt the ice caps, then London becomes flooded. London floods and disappears from memory in J.G. Ballard's The Drowned World in 1962. And Stephen Baxter's Flood in 2008 has water emerging from under the Earth's crust and drowning the planet. And it seems 1962 wasn't a very good year for London, as J.G. Ballard flattened it with high winds in The Wind from Nowhere, and John Christopher brought it to a new ice age, thanks to solar radiation, in The World in Winter. There's nothing like a good alien invasion, And that's what the fifth part of the exhibit featured, especially the 1950s when Dan Dare and his companions returned to Earth to find London under the control of the Mekon, and Quatermass discovered Martians reawakening to invade in Quatermass and the Pit. But as you can probably imagine, most of this section of the exhibit was turned over to one franchise in particular. All I need to say is exterminate, because it was all about Doctor Who and the Daleks who just keep invading London over and over again. The final part of the exhibit, what human and inhuman ingenuity can do, sort of a catch-all section to discuss destructions of London that really didn't fit in any other categories. Now, I really liked this section because it provided an opportunity to highlight some works that really don't fit anywhere else and deserve some discussion. Now, some of the works mentioned were major works that everyone、uh, probably knows, such as、um, The Day of the Triffids from 1951 by John Wyndham. And if you haven't read that, just turn off this podcast right now and go read it, people. But it also focused on some off the beaten path works, such as F. Dickberry's The Storm of London from 1904, in which, well, London survives the storm, it's unharmed, but the clothing of all the inhabitants vanishes. Oh, the scandal! But it gets even crazier when the Earl of Somerville sends his manservant to get him something to read, quote, Temple came back saying that every book had disappeared. <gasps> That's my vision of dystopia. Also, Peter Hawkins' short story, The Daymakers, from science fantasy in 1957, in which readers discover that London is a kind of stage set, dismantled and rebuilt every so often by a group of almost omnipotent beings. Other media was represented too, such as the Clash's song London Calling from 1979, which catalogs a whole range of disasters ice age, crop failure, nuclear error, the explosion of the sun. But it's okay because London is drowning and I live by the river. I was particularly pleased to see Hugh Scott's haunting young adult novel, Why Weeps the Brogan from 1989. Mentioned here. In that novel, 
two children survive what appears to be an atomic war by taking refuge in the British Museum. I haven't, of course, mentioned every work that was listed or highlighted in the exhibit, but I hope this gives you a sense of the depth and breadth of the works covered and the many, many ways that London has been destroyed over the years, thanks to science fiction. All props to Andy Sawyer and to the Science Fiction Foundation and to LUNCON 3, the 72nd World Science Fiction Convention, for hosting this exhibit. Great job. Two thumbs up. I'm very glad that London is, in fact, alive and well, and that its Worldcon showed, in this exhibit and several others, uh, such great awareness of genre history and tradition. And with that, I'll sign off for now, but I look forward to joining you again soon for another look back into genre history. Thank you. Amy, what can I say? Massive thank you. And, you know, the, the, the funny thing was, I, was, I just, you know, it, like Amy says in the beginning, she was just, she's right into kind of exhibits, you know, and like kind of reading all the kind of the info that these people put up there on these notice boards. And I would have just walked past it, you know what I mean? There was just a few, a few of those, you know, where you kind of stick the posters on and, you know, you kind of wander around and I just kind of missed it all, you know what I mean? It all just went past the kind of few posters with a few bits of writing, but Amy just gets it, man, just gets it. And was like, so excited. Tony, come here, come and have a look at this. And to me, like you say, you've got to read the thing to get excited. I was like, all right, what's... what's and I just went straight over me, where Amy's just like, this is what I want, the destruction of London genre history. This is it. I'm going to make a one about this story. I'm going to do a, a segment about it. And I was like, uh, right, okay, yeah. Oh, yeah, we're going to have a drink. So, Amy, it's lovely to hear how it's turned out, do you know what I mean? Like, from your excitement of your finding it, do you know what I mean? And like you say, that's why I just, it, it goes over my head and I just kind of, Keep keep everyone at the bar busy. That's my kind of role when I go to these world cons now or these events. I found that's my kind of niche. I'm pretty good at that. So, Amy, thank you so much. So next up is the final story by Catherine Kramer, You in Emulation. And just if you're interested, both these stories came out in Nature. This distinction in incorporated in 2000 and this one now you're about to hear you in emulation in 2011. This story is narrated by Trisha Glock. Trisha hides behind her writing the way a film star hides behind the camera. It should work, but it doesn't. She has family and pets, but doesn't think it is relevant to mention them. And someone you, you might just recognise Trisha's voice. So, the Starship Sova is very proud to present... You in Emulation by Catherine Kramer I checked you out of the library. You were due back in two weeks for synchronization, but I kept you out much longer, running up huge fines. The librarian was very nice and didn't make me pay right away, but said that she had very little discretion, that the fines were set by the library system and your publisher. I'm a writer, and I was looking for an acting teacher to help me improve how I read my work out loud. Although, of course, your publisher didn't tell me your real name. Your bio on the package really spoke to me. 
I thought we would get along, and we did, from the very first moment that you were uploaded into my card slot. Suddenly, there you were. It surprised me that you were my height. I'm not sure if that's an artifact of the software, virtual teachers scale to the same size as their students, or whether you really are, or were, five foot six. <laughs> I was ready to work. I began to read aloud from the draft of my novel, and I could tell before you even said anything that the narrative voice just didn't work. She wasn't in the story, but aloof, above it all. This moment felt almost like telepathy, but I imagine it was accomplished by transmissions from the software of the emotional colouring of what you were about to say. I had written the story in the third person, but somehow with you sitting there listening to my voice as I read, I had to ask, who is this third person anyway? She is me, of course, but you looked at me with your blue eyes over your glasses and I knew that was no answer. The next day, you tried another angle. You had me sit down on the brown couch and told me to pretend I didn't know who I was or where I was. After I suggested a few solutions, such as looking at my driver's license to find out, I asked, how does this scene not end in the emergency room? Afterwards, I remembered that in that bio of yours I liked so much, a sort of artist's statement, you said, the question, where am I, is my preoccupation. You didn't remind me. Instead, you told me that you'd had an ischemic event a while back that had left you unable to speak for a couple of days. Your paintings hung on the walls of our virtual space. Quiet, expectant landscapes and abstracts involving brightly coloured rectangles. You said you couldn't paint anymore. In between sessions, I sent you long emails and you would reply in only a sentence or two if you replied at all. You said you couldn't write much these days, even though you used to write whole books. The word agraphia came to mind. At the two-week mark... What you were trying to teach me snapped into focus, and I began to hear the narrative voice and to write and write and write, and when I read the words out loud, they were beautiful and pure, and often, when I read, you seemed on the brink of tears. The fines began to mount. I wrote and wrote, and in between I worked out how to help, how to give you back writing and painting. First I write a sentence, you're next. First I make a brushstroke, then you do. I took you hiking in the virtual woods and brought body paints. I told you to paint the sunset on my back as a sketch, and when we got back to our usual virtual space, you painted the sunset on canvas. I would have kept you longer except for the pain. Implants require synchronization and constant upgrades. To keep you from being returned to the library, I had to stay away from the synchronization stations. After a few days, reminders in powder blue letters began to swim across my vision. After a few more days, a physical sensation came with them. After a month, the reminder notes were accompanied by excruciating pain because I was in violation of the license agreement. I negotiated the fines, pointing out that I had solved your writing and painting blocks. The publisher acknowledged that those blocks were a known issue with the product, but said that my work was unnecessary, that in the new upgrade the product no longer had the desire to write or paint and whatever changes there were in my copy would merely be averaged in and so won't have much net effect. I asked to be put in contact with a native version, with a real person. The publisher said that this was contractually prohibited, but impossible in any case, as you died of a stroke a few days after you were recorded.
I went to the library again this morning and checked you out. We've got two weeks. There you go, don't forget, copyright again is Catherine Kramers. Catherine, thank you so much. And Trisha, what can I say, man? Just fantastic. Did anyone get who the voice of Trisha is? Mm hmm. There you go. So that is show 353 put to bed. I hope you've enjoyed it. It has been fantastic. Like you say, a little quirky change on things, playing two short, little, very short stories, which I, I really enjoyed. Adam, thank you so much for that. Now, listen, don't forget. To support this show, we need to keep going, so get some donations in. That would be fantastic. We need to kind of keep going. That's the most important thing on this show. So please, my little months kind of trying to raise funds didn't, <laughs> didn't work that very well at all. And it does look like, unfortunately, we're going to kind of lose Crime City Central and the Protecting Project pulp. They're going to close down, which is, oh, man, a crying shame. So, anyways, that is the news. I'll keep you up to date with that, but it, it ain't going to be long. That's all I can say. So, please keep the other ones coming. You know, let, we'll kind of keep on doing Farfetched Fables and Tales of Terrify and, of course, the Mothership, Starship Sofa. Until next week, I'd just like to say a good night from me. survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Starship Sofa. Evacuation procedure initiated. Shuttle set for launch. Airlock will be opened in three, two, one. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about... Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. The District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.